Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone, I'm C.P. Lesley, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with Joan Schweikart about her novel, The Last Wife of Attila the Hun. Those of you who have followed this show for some time know that I write about and am generally fascinated by the steppe peoples of medieval Eurasia. Attila the Hun is more than a millennium before my time, but the patterns that characterized his empire in many ways resembled those later societies. Only the details changed. A powerful, charismatic, unifying leader Using the skills of steppe warfare and the hardiness of nomadic warriors to attack and defeat settled empires, only to breed a group of squabbling sons who could not hold on to the leader's conquests after his death. But the heroine of this book is a Burgundian, not a Han. When I was a young girl living at Worms, there was nothing I delighted in more than song. And of all those who lifted their voices in our great hall, there was none who did so as beautifully as my brother Gunner. Were he beside me now, he would rebuke me for the method that I have chosen to relate my story to you. He would insist, instead, on fashioning a melody for my words and singing them to you from beginning to end. He would begin modestly, singing, as he always did, that he had no talent for melodies, but entreating you nevertheless to remember his words. And, friend, as there is no bird, no summer breeze, no sweet stream lapping or soft rain falling that could compete with Gunner for one's attention, have no doubt that you would have remembered them. He would have looked into your eyes while he sang and touched you in a deeper place than he ever touched a man or a woman when he went without his harp. Though I can never hope to emulate his elegance, let me begin likewise, telling you first that I have no talent either. This thing, this process of setting down one word after the next on parchment, is new to me, and as a friend once stated, tedious. And in spite of all the pains that I have taken to learn it, I find that I am apprehensive now, because I cannot look into your eyes as my brother would have, because I cannot hope to touch you in that holy place where the hearts of all folk are joined together. Still, I would have you remember my words. And now, please join me in welcoming Joan Schweikart. Hi, Joan. Thanks so much for agreeing to talk with me today. Hi, Kate. How are you? I'm uh, really looking forward to this. Uh, You've Let's first talk about you, as I always do. Um, You've published four other novels, uh, Island, Homebodies, Virtual Silence, and The Accidental Art Thief, uh, none of which is historical fiction. Uh, But you also have um, an interesting career in publishing. You run an editing service. You had your publishing company of your own at one time. Uh, Please tell us something about your journey into writing and publishing and about those earlier projects. Okay, well, I had my first three novels published back in the 90s. Um, And at the time, I was working as a head writer for a a, a public relations company. And um, so I didn't have a lot of time, but I I wrote when I could. And uh, and so I had the three novels published, one, two, three in a row, by the Permanent Press, which is a really wonderful kind of mid-sized publishing company. They've been around for a long time. 
And um, so I was working in PR, and I got this idea that because I was working as a writer in PR that I was learning something about marketing. And in 1997, I went to a party, and I met a woman by the name of Julie Mars. And um, she was a writer also. And uh, so, of course, we became quick friends, and I gave her my books to read, and she gave me her manuscript. Her manuscript had been with an agent for a long time, a really good agent from New York City, and the agent had not been able to sell it. And I read it, and, and I just, I, it, was, I, it was a jaw-dropping experience for me. I couldn't believe that anything so wonderful as her kind of literary um, mystery novel hadn't been published. And because I was working in PR and getting it into my head that I was learning something about marketing, I decided that I would publish her book, <laughs> that I would become a publisher. Um, I have to tell you that at the time I was a single parent. I was working full time. I was trying to write my own stuff and, and uh, go forward with my, you know, my writing career. And um, I didn't have any extra money and I obviously had no extra time. But once I told her and, and she really liked the idea a lot because she wanted to get the book out there, um, there was no going back. So in 99, I started a publishing company. And um, it turned out to be one of the best experiences of my life. Um, uh, unfortunately, back in those days, it, publishing was different than it is now. And if you had a, a, a traditional publishing company, you would have a distributor. And your distributor would sell your books into bookstores because bookstores were, were uh, where most of the selling took place before Amazon. And um, so I had a distributor who went out of business and um, I had I had borrowed money to publish two books in a particular year. And um, because the distributor went out of business, um, after he sold my books out to Barnes and Noble and so forth, I didn't get that money back. And that kind of, that was the end of my publishing. Actually, I got another distributor and I hung on for a couple more years but I had to pay that money back out of my working salary and I never got back on my feet. So I stopped publishing in 2005, but it was, it was a really great experience. Um, and I loved it. And after that, I just kept working with writers. Um, I started my own business and I started, uh, ghostwriting, um, consulting, editing, um, doing PR for writers, whatever, you know, I had done for the publishing company, but now I had no overhead. So uh, tell us a little bit about those, those first four novels. Um, where did you get the ideas for them and what kinds of preparation did you do to actually produce a novel? What kind of what? I'm sorry to get the end part of that. Uh, what kinds of preparation did you do? Did you just oh, keep working on it? Yeah. Um, were you in a writer's group? Were you, did you take courses? What kinds of things did you do? And, but, but talk about the novels themselves a little bit so we have a sense of what they are. Okay, well, they're all kind of um, contemporary uh, literary novels. The first three, as I said, were one after the other, Island Homebody and Virtual Island Homebody. Um, and they kind of came out of my, some of the things that were happening in my life, not exactly things that were happening in my life, but things that, you know, that's kind of where you start. I think when you're a young writer is you take things in your life and, um, and then you um, exaggerate them and, you know, make them into real fiction. But it starts at the core with something in your own life. Um, uh, the Accidental Art Thief was only published 
in uh, the spring of uh, 2015. So you can see that there's a big gap between um, books there. And that one didn't have anything to do with my life, almost. I mean, there was, there was really only one thing that um, was in my life. <laughs> so and, It's a wonderful uh, title. Actually, <laughs> you know, it was, it was the most fun book to write. Um, at the time, I was writing a memoir, and I was in a writing group with two other really wonderful writers, and our, what we decided was that every week we would each have something to read and so that because we're all working and we're all busy and sometimes you have to put that pressure on yourself to really keep things going. So, and because I was working on a memoir, um, there were, there were times when I didn't have anything to read it because I really had to think that out, and, you know, remember things that happened a long time ago and decide what I wanted to put in and what I didn't. So I started writing the accidental art piece so that I would have something to bring to the writer's group when I wasn't bringing something from the memoir. And because I didn't really give it the kind of concentration I was giving a memoir, my challenge was to end each chapter in a way that would be kind of surprising to me <laughs> and, and then to continue the next chapter. It was kind of a, a, um, uh, a practice in creativity for me. But as it developed, I started to really like it, and um, I like the way it turned out. It's kind of a funny, zany book, and um, it, it, I, it brings together a lot of things that I'm concerned with, you know, that have been lifelong concerns for me, um, such as homelessness. Um, that's something that just always comes up in my life, and I'm on the board for a homeless shelter um, here where I live in Albuquerque, and so that kind of found its way into the book. Um, I went to a seminar about uh, fundraising with Lynn Twist, who is probably um, the most famous uh, fundraiser. She she, fun, she did fundraising for years and years for World Hunger. And um, most of the people who were at the seminar, it was a two-day seminar, were Buddhists who were trying to learn how to, how to ask for money. Because for them especially, it was very hard. They all had these different organizations that they were, you know, part of, and they needed they needed funds, and they didn't know how to ask. So I I did that as part of my research, and it just became a wonderful, fun project. So um, I like it better than the first three books. You know, when you look back um, over time. <laughs> uh, yeah, so. I think everybody does that. I mean, not only in academic, I mean, not only in novel writing, but any writing that you did when you were. 15, 20 years younger, you look back and you think, wow, you know, all the stuff that I missed. Right, yeah. It sounds like a lot of fun. Well, that's good to know. So when people fall in love with The Last Wife of Attila the Hun, they have other books to read. <laughs> so uh, let's, let's get to, um, to the historical fiction then. Uh, you published a previous edition of The Last Wife of Attila the Hun um, under the title of Gudrun's Tapestry. Uh, so how would you characterize that first version of the book and what made you decide to rewrite it? Okay, well, the uh, first version of the book I actually wrote in the late 90s before I got deep into publishing because once I was publishing and working full-time, I had zero time for myself. That's the only thing I didn't like about publishing is that I didn't write books anymore. I still did a lot of writing. I edited, you know, all my author's books. Um, I wrote all their flap copy. I did, you know, wrote all their pitch letters. So I did a lot of writing around the periphery of book writing, but I didn't write. And I really missed it. But I had written um, uh, Gudrun's Tapestry in the late 90s. 
and I had it with an agent for a while, and um, it, it just, she sent it out to 10 different people, which is usually what they do is they have a certain number in their heads when they send it out, and if you get all passes, then you get back to the others. So it was kind of sitting under my bed collecting dust, so to speak. And um, a friend of mine called me up in, I guess it was 2002, and she said, oh, I just saw um, an Attila the Hun movie on TV, and Attila was so handsome, and he was really, women were swooning, and I I couldn't believe it, <laughs> because that's so different from what, who the historical Attila really was. So I took my copy out, and I dusted it off, and I sent it to um, a company called Eagle Bay Books. Um, and, and they published it. They loved it, and they published it, and um, they did a fabulous job. It won um, Forward Magazine and Independent Publisher Award. Um, it was translated into Russian and Italian, and um, it, it, they, it was just a great experience for me in the middle of my own publishing career to have this book come out. Um, a couple of years ago, I heard from the person over there, my contact over at Beagle Bay, uh, she sent me a note to say that um, they were becoming a book packaging company and they were no longer going to be publishing and that the rights would revert back to me. So I think ordinarily I, I would have said, okay, well, you know, we had a good run. But I really loved the book and, and I so enjoyed writing it. And as you can imagine, I spent a million hours researching um, to make sure that everything was accurate. So I decided that I, I would just um, see if somebody else wanted to publish it. And I guess I was going to be kind of lackadaisical about it, but the first person I sent it to, um, the proposition, um, sent me an email and said they would publish it. So I thought, wow, this is, this is great. So, of course, it has um, new identification numbers um, and a new cover, but it's also gone through three edits with an editor um, there at Bookscope. So it, it's tighter and just slightly different, not greatly different, but... Um, that's different enough that I can kind of consider it a new book. Um, That's a really interesting model they have over a book trope. Can you tell us a little bit about it and how it's worked out for you as an author? Um, their model is, is very interesting. What they do is once they decide that they're going to take you on, you go on their website and um, they have uh, people on the other end. They have proofreaders book managers, um, cover designers, uh, editors, all these people who have signed up with them, and their bios are all on the website. So you go through the bios and you see you know, from the bio what people you might want to work with, and you find yourself a book manager, a proofreader, an editor, cover artist, and then you become a team. So when the book sells, um, the author gets the lion's share of the um, profit, and then the publisher gets um, something just slightly less than that. And then you negotiate with your, your people and your team um, how much they'll get. So it actually it's actually really fun because um, anybody who's written um, several books like yourself, you know that it can be very lonely. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. So this way you just have a, a bunch of people who have the incentive to do their very best work because they they want you know they want to make money too <laughs> mm-hmm. and they want to see the book do well so it's actually really fun and um, uh, I like them you know and and their 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 model is very popular they actually um, raise money to start the company 
um, at uh, one of those angel conferences. I think they received a million dollars. I don't know. It's some really big figure. I'm very bad with numbers. But they received a lot of money to start with. And and then they uh, went again and, and received more money. So um, people believe in what they're doing. And in, in this uh, publishing environment, when um, traditional publishing is, you know, there, there are only a, 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 a number, a small number of traditional publishers, you know, something like this may, this model may wind up being um, the, the most suitable for our time. Yeah, that's what I thought. I was, I mean, I, the only reason I was investigating them really was because I was trying to find the link for your book, uh, but I was struck by it. It's somewhat similar to what uh, Amazon does with its audio um, book creation service ACX which I haven't used but I did go on there you you find you pick your own reader and then although in that case oh, really? I think you pay the the person in advance I, I I don't know exactly how it works but it in any case it sounded like a really interesting idea so I wanted to make sure that I mentioned that um, but let's go back to the book itself uh, when we first meet Gudrun is how you said Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, she's recalling her childhood at Verms, and I have to admit, this, this, <laughs> it's like the elementary school kid in me. I can never read that word without remembering the diet of worms. <laughs> like... <laughs> but anyway, um, so, but when we, um, the scene shifts very dramatically as the book moes into chapter one. So, uh, Gudrun has been on a long journey and is at last reaching the goal, which really sets up the rest of the story. So talk to us about her background and her destination in Chapter 1, and then we'll get to her purpose in a, in a little bit. Okay. Well, her background is um, she's a Burgundian. Uh, the Burgundians were a Germanic tribe, and they were living in Worms, and they had this um, kind of kingdom. It was probably not a kingdom, not what we would think of today as a kingdom, but there were a large number of people and her uncle was the king, and she was having a happy childhood. Um, she had, a, there was a Frankish um, tribe not too far from them, and a young man by the name of Sigurd, who was her love interest, um, even when she was a kid. And um, <clears throat> the Romans, uh, who were trying to kind of uh, control you know, all of Europe at that time, didn't like that the fact that the Burgundians, were always trying to get more land for themselves. So they paid the Huns under the rule of Attila um, to destroy the kingdom. And um, after that, there were only not a handful of survivors, but I don't know, maybe a hundred survivors from a, a much larger um, tribe of people. And they were resettled in a different part of um, Europe. Um, and so Gudrun and her brothers, her three brothers, grew up under the threat of the Huns coming back to them again. Everybody was afraid of the Huns. Everybody was afraid of Attila. Um, that was kind of what all the talk was about at the time. Um, anyway, before the beginning of the book, uh, you asked me why she's making her way to Attila. Um, Gudrun's brothers received a sword from her love interest, interest Seeger. Um, and... A series of events convinces all parties that this sword is cursed and destroys the love life of the people who own it. So in the first chapter, it winds up in Gudrun's hands, and she decides that she's going to bring it to Attila, so it will destroy his life, so he will stop, you know, um, conquering uh, Germanic um, communities and a tribe. Um, 
and that's why she's on her way to a toe in the first chapter. So, um, Gudrun herself is a really interesting study in contrast. Uh, at times she seems very passive, at times she is very active. Um, tell us about her character. Well, when she was a child in, in Worms, I think she was a very ordinary girl. Um, she had her family, she had her community, she had Sigurd, she had um, her brother, she had her God, and that was really enough for her. And she didn't have any ambitions to be anything, you know, but what she was. But as she got older, all these things were taken away from her, not her God, but her family, her community. All these things, one by one, were taken away from her, and she goes through a series of tragic events, and um, they all but kill her, psychologically speaking. And when she comes out the other end, um, after these tragic events have finally ended, she, she she's much stronger than she was. And um, when she's told by an uncle who has, quote, unquote, the sight um, that she was she's meant to take up this sword, uh, she knows that she what she needs to do with it is get it to Attila. So, um, why did you choose Gudrun as the vehicle for telling your story? Okay, well, you know, I started I started off reading and falling in love with the legends, um, which include Gudrun and Sigrid, um, and, and touch on Attila. They they try very very hard to you know to pull Attila into their narratives, but basically they're about Sigrid and Gudrun. And I probably would never have read the history of Attila or studied the history of Attila if I hadn't fallen in love with the legends first. So it was reading the legends that made me want to write a novel about, you know, the information within. And so, um, and, you know, I Gudrun <laughs> as my narrator. So, but that's really interesting because I think there are... I would probably safe to say that most people don't read the poetic eddas in their spare time. So, so what was it that drew you to that particular legendary source? Well, you know, I read the poetic eddas in a class in college, and um, I just fell in love with the information. And and then I read it again, and then I was out of school, and I was still reading it, and you know, going over it, and um, I I just decided that you know. The great thing about the poetic eddas, they so these these legends got their start in in um, Central Europe, and then um, in the fifth century, when when these things had some kind of a historical basis, although you know scholars are divided on how much of it is really historical and how much of it is legendary, and then. They traveled to Iceland with the Vikings, and when the Vikings settled in Iceland, they had, they brought all these legends with them orally, and then they they existed orally for centuries and centuries. So you can imagine that they they shifted in shape, and things were added to them and, and taken away and forgotten. And then finally, in the 13th century, somebody started um, pulling them together, um, and and then you wind up. There's a book called The Poetic Eddas, which, you know, probably has not that much to do with the original stuff. But um, it was fascinating to me. And it's kind of like a game of telephone. You know, uh, each each uh, um, generation probably changed them somewhat. So they're very fragmentary. And because they're fragmentary, there's a lot of room for interpretation. So if you were to take the same legends and, and write a novel, 
and uh, somebody else and somebody else, we would all have very, very different novels. So I never felt worried that you know, somebody would have the exact same thing as me. Um, uh, some people ask me about Wagner's operas, which are also based on the secret engagement legend. He didn't read the, well, he may have read it, I don't know, but he didn't use the poetic edits as his source for learning about the legends. He used um, a Germanic source, uh, 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 another telephone game that stayed in, in Germany and also um, was an oral tradition for years and years and years and centuries before it, it was written down into um, a book that is ultimately, or a poem that's ultimately unpronounceable. <laughs> um, I can spell it for you, but I can't pronounce it. Something like Nibelungnied, as a big, long um, German word, and that was his source for his operas. So um, they're not alike. Um, if, if you've heard his operas, you're not going to say, oh, that's the same thing that John Schweitzer wrote about in the book. <laughs> well, that's kind of, I was going to ask you if it constrained you, but that sounds like it's kind of freeing then if it's not the same story. Well, some, you know, it's probably close. I actually never listened to the operas, I have to admit. Um, I, I had it in my head that if I, because I was, you know, so set on using the poetic edits as my, um, what I was going to draw from and my source of inspiration. And I felt like if I, if I read if, his, the, um, the operas too, or listened to the operas and, and learned about them, I was going to have too much in my head and, and um, it would be more difficult. So um, my big concern was um, because the, the editors tried to bring Attila into their narrative, I wanted to find a place where I could, where they intersect, where the history of Attila would really intersect with um, uh, the Sigurd and Gudrun legends, because you know there's a big difference between legendary material and historical material, and I wanted it, I wanted it to fit well together, uh, you know, the puzzle pieces to fit because um, that's the kind of writer I am. I'm not, I can't go too far out universe. <laughs> no, you, you actually do a lovely job of that. And I was impressed, uh, especially impressed by it because I use Turkic mythology in my Russian novels because the Tatars are a, a major part of the novels. And so I wanted to tell, I, I do tell the story from the Russian point of view also, but a lot of it is done from, from the point of view of my Tatar characters and their uh, worldview. And so there's always a question of how you bring in that element of it without giving the reader the impression that you yourself believe that any of this stuff is happening, you know, that, and I thought you did a really wonderful job with that and with integrating the legends and the history. Was that fun to do, to, to work out? Oh, it was great fun. It was, it was really wonderful. I didn't realize until then, um, that, you know, that I loved history so much and I, I didn't realize I loved research so much. Um, and, and back when I started researching this, uh, you know, you could go, I forget what the program was called, but there was some program that you could pull up on your computer that was kind of like a, an encyclopedia, but you really couldn't get good information off the computer. It's not like, you know, today you can kind of track anything down. But back then, you know, I would go to the library and I would take out books and, and some would not be the right books and I'd bring them back and take out more. And it was a whole big thing. It was, it was. It was a lifestyle for me during the time that I was doing it. And I found that I loved that. Um, so 
I, I had to wait a number of years until the opportunity came to do another historical novel, but I always knew I loved that, and um, it was it was just a great experience, um, which is probably another reason, because I put so much of my, my passion as well as my time into it, um, that, you know, I, I was happy to have the opportunity to have it uh, come out again. So is there a lot of information out there? Because, I mean, obviously there is on the Roman Empire. It's both Western and Eastern. Uh, but on the Burgundians and the Huns and so on, is, is there a lot out there to look for? Well, the Huns didn't write at that time. The Germanic people didn't write. So the only information being written was um, being written by Romans. And so all of the stories about Attila really come from Roman sources, um, or most of the stories, I should say, all. But most of them come from Roman sources. So, so there was a lot of information about um, different uh, um, embassies coming from Rome and meeting with Attila. And wherever I could, I, I put that into the book because I, I just thought it was so fascinating and um, to get their view of what he was like. And he was a pretty uh, unique guy. All his, his men, his officers, all... Uh, wore jewels, you know, they were all so proud of all these uh, accomplishments, you know, that they had in killing people in battle. So they had all kinds of jewels and and um, nicer clothes. And Attila was a very simple man. He drank his wine out of a wooden cup. Um, he ate his food off of a wooden plate. Everybody else had gold. Um, he was really grumpy and mean and, uh, you know, he, he would have entertainment come into his hall. And when he was done listening to, you know, the the um, entertainment, he would just, you know, tell everybody to get out, you know, one, two, three. He was, he was crude, and um, it was really interesting to me because this stuff did come from the Romans who came to visit him. And, and there was worse. I won't go into it, but, you know, uh, being rude with his entertainment um, because of the iceberg. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's so uh, funny to think of. Uh, I, I guess Hollywood does this kind of thing where you know uh, the um, uh, Genghis Khan is a real hunk and Attila is a real hunk. <laughs> <It's kind> of... <laughs> no, probably not. <laughs> but you also hinted at some of the politics uh, earlier that the, the Romans paid Attila to destroy um, the Burgundians in this particular case. But there's also a lot of information in your book about you know, Attila being bought off by the various empires or being turned against this place or that place. Um, that, that was a pretty interesting angle to it as well. Yeah, that was really fascinating for me because I don't remember studying that in history, you know, um, before, you know, in high school, I didn't study history in college, but I didn't, I don't remember ever really knowing anything about that. In fact, like, really all I knew was the name Attila the Hun, and I knew he was a bad guy, but I didn't know any of those details. So, um, in, you know, in reading about Attila, since he was always at war with the Roman Empire, the Eastern and Western Roman Empires, I had to start learning about the Roman Empire, too. And um, it was really fascinating. And then again, I had to know where to stop, because otherwise the whole book would have gone off in a different direction, and it would have been more about the politics of the time. So um, it was interesting. Yeah, I think that's always a problem. I often ask uh, my authors this because each person has an individual measure of how to do it. But, you know, I, I love the historical research, too. But it, part of writing a novel is not putting it all in the book. So how did you decide what not to put in? Um, 
Well, again, because there there really wasn't that much information about Attila. Uh, so whatever I could get, I, I really wanted to try to include. Uh, there was a lot of information, but not if you were writing about, you know, somebody uh, much more current who's really been written about a lot. Um, and it, it, there was a lot to leave out of uh, the Sigurd and the Gudrun legends also. Um, I don't know, you know, there, and there were a lot of gaps. So so I had all this, this good information about the legends and all this good information about the history. And then um, there were places where the puzzle fit really well, and there were places where it didn't fit at all, and I had to build the bridges back and forth. So, um, you know, it was really a combination of, of, of knowing my two sources and then, um, you know, being creative to get everything to fit together. So... Um, that probably doesn't answer that question really well. Uh, <laughs> well that's all right. We'll let people yeah. read the book and figure out what a good job you did. So you've told us a bit about Attila and a bit about Gudrun. Uh, tell us a little bit more about Sigurd. Okay, so he uh, he was a really interesting character, um, I thought. Now, some of the things that he does, um, I had to have him do them kind of off stage and then come back and talk about them because I didn't want to have, uh, I, I wanted to have the dragons and so forth in my book, but I didn't want them. I wanted them to be, you know, I wanted the readers to be able to say, I believe that, you know, he really did go kill a dragon and that's where he got the gold from. Um, or um, I don't believe that. And I'm glad that that's off stage and I can, you know, see it from my own point of view. Um, so, uh, but anyway, he, he did have a really wonderful relationship with Gudrun um, when they were growing up, and he was kind of the opposite of Attila, because Attila is rough and antisocial and, and definitely a psychopath, and, um, and it's, uh, Sigurd is kind of funny and, and um, lackadaisical and sweet. Um, but what they both have in common is that they were both kind of, they were both greedy, um, Attila was greedy for power. You know, he hoped to dominate the whole world. Um, but Sigurd was greedy for fame and fortune, and that was his downfall. He really wanted to be well-known and well-thought of, and he also wanted to be wealthy. But the fame thing was, was the biggest um, hook for him. So, um, Gudrun's family is, is also very important to her. Um, her mother, her father, her three brothers, uh, what can you tell us about them uh, without giving away plot spoilers? Okay, well, her father, we he's mentioned in the book, um, but he dies on the way when they're resettling from Worms to uh, an area called Sapodilla. Um, he he dies, and that's uh, Gudrun's recollection of his death is, is um, recalled in the book, but it, it doesn't happen, actually, during the course of the story. Um, her brother, Gunnar, is um, a musician. And he's also a musician in the legends, and he's one of the things that really attracted me to the legends. I love the idea that back in these times, before people had writing, it, it was really important to have somebody in your family who could um, sing and keep your oral tradition alive, because it's much easier um, to keep an oral tradition alive if you're singing it and you make it into a song, and then you sing that song over and over, than if you're just telling people what happened. So they had to carry their whole history forward um, through uh, talented people who could sing. And Gunnar happened to be extremely talented, a really good singer, and um, he had a harp 
And um, when people came, so when the Franks came to visit the Burgundians, which of course didn't happen every weekend because everybody was kind of spread out, but when they did come, maybe every spring, um, Gunner would get out his harp and he would start singing about all the things that happened to the Burgundians in in the um, Franks' absence. Now, you know, um, any things that happened weather-wise, um, uh, things that happened with the Romans coming to collect their tributes, their taxes, whatever happened. Um, so he was a really interesting, fascinating character. On the other end, um, though, he, he was not as close to Gudrun as Pagan, uh, her other older brother, and then she had a younger brother, Guthorn, who um, was the youngest of the four siblings, and he was born um, uh, probably we would say today, developmentally disabled. And um, uh, I, he had to be, in, in order for me to stay in keeping with the legendary material, there had to be one brother who was not able to participate in um, a blood brothers ceremony that the brothers have with Cedric during the course of the book. And so I had to have a reason for Guthorn not to be there. And I developed, um, I decided that you know, I would make him develop and he's disabled. And um, he's afraid to do that bread with leather thing where they have to, you know, cut their hands and, and um, start bleeding and runs away from um, the ceremony when it's going on. And, um, and that puts him in the position for other things that happen in the book because he is outside that, that blood leather. And in fact, um, at the uh, the Burgundians practice infanticide of babies that are considered not healthy enough to survive. So, Guthorm has barely made it into into life. Right. Yeah, that was something I read when I was looking up the history of the times. Was that um, when people had children that they knew from the time they were very small were developmentally disabled or or had any kind of a problem. They would leave them out in the snow um, to, you know, to to die uh, because, you know, they were basically farmers and, and they weren't able to do the kind of work they needed to do and take care of children like that. And um, that was just what they did at the time. But um, I I thought that because they had just uh, their kingdom had just been destroyed and Guthorm was the firstborn after the just destruction of the kingdom, the firstborn among the survivors, that um, uh, Guthrum and Gudrun's father would make an exception and say, you know, he's going to symbolize our our will to go on, and we're going to keep him in spite of the fact that, you know, he has some disability. And he's a really lovable character. Um, so uh, I have, I have, some, I have someone in my, my life and my family who um, is developmentally disabled. So if anybody would ever to go back and read all my books, they would say that there are developmentally disabled people <laughs> all over the place. Uh, so I, my heart, you know, has a place uh, like that. And so uh, that was another reason why I wrote him in there. <clears throat> oh, that's good to know. Yes, it was it was shocking, but very believable because our ancestors were, in general, not very sentimental about um, people who um, needed to be taken care of. Uh, in uh, they, so, I understood, and I thought you did a good job of explaining it. He is a very charming character. Um, so, um, a lot of trouble. 
Yeah. Oh, let's talk just a little bit about Gudrun's mother also, because the relationship there is quite close. Yeah, well, Gudrun's mother is kind of, um, she's very sad in the very beginning because, you know, she, she, because of everything that happened to uh, their people and the fact that they have uh, she, no, no, very, very few survivors. But she's, she's very domestic, and she keeps um, a good eye on Gudrun. There's no reason for Gudrun to marry Sigurd to, um, you know, to bring, uh, to, to enhance a relationship with other tribal people. So an arranged marriage with Sigurd would not help to, you know, do anything political for the Burgundians. Um, but uh, that's what, of course, Gudrun wants to do. She wants to marry Sigurd, and her mother's kind of always on her not to. Um, but then uh, I don't want to give too much of the plot away. Um, her mother is also very suspicious, and um, when she sees that there is a reason which I won't go into for, for the two of them to be married and quickly, um, she she starts coming up with all these concoctions and magic potions and things that she thinks um, might be needed because of the circumstances. So that's really vague, but um, the plot is uh, it's hard to talk about relative to you know, other things that I've written and things that I've read because... Um, because there's a lot going on. <laughs> right, there so is. One, one thing seems to, you know, uh, require information about another thing. So, so we'll leave that whole um, that whole element, that whole plot thread aside, um, and talk about something else. So, uh, we're talking about this book uh, as though it were a story that that began at the beginning and goes all the way through. But one of the things that's interesting about it is that it actually begins in the most dramatic point. And although everything is in the distant past, there is, um, there's a backstory that is told along with uh, Gudrun's experience in Attila's camp after she gets to, you know, after she goes there to deliver the sword. So the story is going back and forth and all of the stuff about Sigurd and um, her family and so on is, is something that she is remembering. It's very dramatically told, but it's, it's it's it occurs within the the frame of this larger story in a, in Attila's camp. So uh, when she gets to the camp, she she hands she wants to hand the sword to Attila. Tell us a little bit. This is actually very early in the book, although it it, it occurs fairly late in her story. Tell us a little bit about her reception in Attila's camp. All right. Well, she comes into the camp. Um with the story all rehearsed, she she figures Attila is going to. The sword is unbelievably beautiful. First of all, it's got all kinds of carved. Um, it's all gold and it has carvings on the handle, whatever um, the shaft. Uh, it, it's just a gorgeous uh, a sword, and um, it's and she knows that Attila is going to fall in love with it because everybody else who has seen it has, and she believes it's cursed. And she plans to tell him it's, it's magic and that it will bring, you know, him good luck rather than bad. Um, so she rehearses the story because she knows the first thing that he'll want to know is, how did you come by that sword? And um, the story is half true. It's based on things that really happened. But then um, she changes her part in the story because she doesn't want you know him to know that uh, but, but she had uh, relationships with a lot of the people who are going to be in her made-up story. Um, so uh, what happens is that she doesn't get to talk to Attila. She's right away, she's, she's in prison. Um, 
and uh, one of Attila's officers becomes the liaison between Gudrun and Attila, and he sits down in her, she's imprisoned in a little hut, and she's got um, somebody who writes back and forth all the time in front of the hut to make sure she doesn't leave. And um, the officer's name is, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, because I've never heard a pronunciation, it's Etico. And he's actually a Germanic person, too, who's tried um, Attila's people conquered, um, you know, when he was much younger, and uh, he, he, I guess, started out as a prisoner and then, you know, wasn't a prisoner and then rose in the ranks and became one of the Toe's most trusted officers. So he sits down with Bridger and says, how did you get the sword? And she tells him this big story that she made up. And um, when he tells Attila, Attila says, you know, there's no way I'm going to go around saying that I, I got this, my, my magic sword from this woman who, a uh, Germanic woman who says she got it from two brothers who stole it from this guy named Sigurd who, who got it from a dragon, <laughs> who got it from the gods. He can't go around telling people that, you know, he's got to save face, but he also wants to be able to boast about the sword. So he, he makes up his own story. And now if he's going to make up his own story, he can't let her free because she might go back and tell other people that his story is not true. So he decides that he, he will imprison her. Yet, on the other hand, he doesn't want to kill her because he knows that it's some part of the magic power of this, the sword is connected to keeping her alive. So she becomes a prisoner in the village of Atoa, the last thing she expected to happen. And I think that's probably as far as we can go before we get uh, too caught up in, the, in giving away plot points. So tell me, what, what would you like readers to take away from this story? Well, I would like people to take away, I think, um, the, the beauty of the legends. Um, the legends are, are really beautiful. They're timeless. I mean, they're about love and lust and betrayal and loyalty, um, free, fame, power, community. You know, all things that we think about today, even though these people had different values and they did their, their concerns were still the same. Um, and there's a timelessness to the legends, which is, you know, when I read it, um, it they were just so beautiful. You know, if you want to go read the Poetic Eddas, you, you can do that also, but they're very fragmentary and they're not easy to read. <laughs> there are stories in the, they're, they're called lays, the lays in the Poetic Eddas. So I've done the homework for readers, more or less, and I've taken these beautiful legends and put them into the story. And, um, and then we've got the history, too. So... Um, it's kind of a little-known uh, historical period. So I'm hoping what readers will take away is the magic that exists in timeless stories. Um, That's wonderful. So I understand that you have another historical novel finished. Can you tell us anything about that? Um, yeah, I don't want to say too much about it, but I finished a historical novel recently, and I'm very excited about it. It takes place in part in the Amazon jungle. And I made two trips to the Amazon as part of my research, and that, uh, they were life-changing. It was just, you know, wonderful for me. So um, uh, I'm, I'm hoping that it won't be long before that book is available, too, but I just finished that. So. And what time period is it set in? It's, uh, it takes place in 1906. Um, the two characters are Irish stock workers who decide to, at the time, the rubber boom is going on in the Amazon, and a lot of people are getting very rich. And, of course, they can't see into the future to know that the rubber boom will come to a quick end. Um, 
only you know, seven or eight years later because uh, because um, rubber plantations start cropping up in Southeast Asia. But at that time, the only place where you could get rubber was in um, in the Amazon, and um, it was very dangerous, and a lot of people were dying. So this was kind of a real adventure novel. Uh, it's not pure adventure. There's other stuff going on, but um, one of the things is there are times in the Amazon, which was big fun to write about. It's a long way from the fifth century step. Yes. <laughs> or Hungary, I guess. It's right at the very, very edge of the step. Right. So uh, what are you working on now? Do you have another project underway? I, I have another project. You know, I'm, I'm working for clients, so I always put that first. And sometimes it could be three weeks will go by and I won't have any time at all to write, you know, do my own project. So everything is is, is slow, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, although I love working for clients. I love what I do for clients. I love ghostwriting. I love editing. Um, but it's taking me a while. Um, another book that I'm writing is about a homeless man. And um, actually, that's that's how I became a board member for our local homeless shelter, because I started doing research about homelessness, because I wanted to make sure I had my facts right. And I, I met with some people who are part of homeless organizations. And the next thing I knew, I was a board member for a homeless shelter. So even if that book never gets finished, because my heart is really actually with um, now that I've finished the, the one about the Amazon, I'm kind of thinking and collecting materials to write a sequel about that. Um, but anyway, even if I don't finish the homeless book, um, some good came of me starting it. <laughs> That's great. Well, we wish you all the best, and thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Thank you very much. It was fun. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, and today I've been talking with Joan Schweikart, author of The Last Wife of Attila the Hun. You can find out more about her at www.joanschweikart.com. That's J-O-A-N-S-C-H-W-E-I-G-H-A-R-D-T, as one word. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me and my books at blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about new books in historical fiction.